Retail Revolution is a special limited podcast created specifically for retailing and service design, a unique course that is part of the Fashion Management Graduate Program at Parsons School of Design in New York City. Each episode features in-depth conversations with guest experts in omni-channel retailing with myriad perspectives, technology, consumer engagement, data analytics, merchandising, and more. We pay special attention to the short and long-term challenges and implications of COVID-19 and potential opportunities to rethink retail's future. Retail Revolution is produced by Joshua Williams and hosted by Christopher Lacey. Both are assistant professors in the School of Fashion at Parsons. Welcome to Retail Revolution podcast, where we discuss all things pertaining to retail and service design. I'm your host, Christopher Lacey. And with me today is Chief Brand Strategist Kevin Thompson. He has been named to Forbes as the CMO Next List of 2018 and has written multiple articles on the ideas and strategies around consumer engagement, some of which include how tech can interrupt the luxury customer experience, how to use psychology to refresh the rebrand experience, and why consumer research needs to be your top priority. Thank you so much, Kevin Thompson, for joining us today. No problem. It's great to be here. Thanks. So, Kevin, I'm going to kick it off to you. I want you to tell our listeners about you and your career trajectory because it's quite an interesting story. It is an interesting story. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Um, I think uh, it's been a curious career path for me. And I think, um, you know, I I benefited from a a wide variety of experiences in a number of different fields that sort of helped me help propel me through different roles. I'm Canadian originally. Um, I I finished my master's in Vancouver and I was recruited to come to New York City um, just before, a few months before September 11th. I I arrived in New York City and and started working for a Gates Foundation think tank that was part of the New York City Board of Ed. And it was a a, a fascinating time, I think a traumatic time, of course, with with 9-11 happening. And and, I was asked to join this uh, the New York City Board of Ed at a time when they were trying to reimagine what education meant uh, to, to in New York City and and to look at you know a, a big failing institution and try to reimagine the the value proposition for for the the Board of Ed and for schools like uh, Morris High School where I was stationed for the first year in the South Bronx. Um, with that had you know a seventy percent dropout rate and and you know a, a shockingly bad um, daily attendance. It was it was a difficult time, um, and it, you know really I was thinking a lot about how to manage the, the the message that would convince students to come to school every day. You know what was the value proposition in in coming to high school for kids who really didn't believe that it was worth their time or worth their energy. Um, and that it's interestingly that's that that's what I think is most interesting about my career path. That has sort of been the common thread that has that has stuck through moving away from the education field. I left to start my own business and I opened a, a designer menswear boutique in Soho. Um, that transitioned into an opportunity to. Uh, join Gucci uh, just shortly after Tom Ford had departed the brand and they were rethinking about brand value and brand messaging and, and understanding consumers and building a, a customer experience um, think tank that didn't exist before for a, a very storied luxury brand. I think the brand was about 84 years old when I joined. Um, I moved from there to Montclair, another 
you know, a storied brand from Europe that has this very cult-like following and, and uh, customer loyalty that is that is almost unparalleled in my experience. Um, and uh, and then the, another luxury retail brand, I was at Barney's New York as head of customer experience and development there, um, building out the, the thinking behind building relationships with consumers and why that is a value and why that matters now. And I think particularly, I'm sure this is something to touch on in the discussion, why that is a particular importance in, in, in and, and immediacy in the current environment. Um, and then I stepped away from luxury retail, sort of. I, I was recruited into a role at Simon Property Group, which is a, 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 they, the, one of the largest REITs in the world. They own shopping centers. Um, and again, it was a, it was this sort of critical time for shopping malls, thinking about the role they play with consumers, whether they're still valued the way that they were in, you know, sort of the heyday of this, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, when the shopping mall was functioned as almost community center and gathering place for people of all ages and all demographics. And um, we launched Simon as a consumer facing brand, which was new. It was new in the industry and a, a challenging undertaking. Um, and then I moved from there to uh, residential real estate, and I stepped back into l the luxury space, a space that I, I'm, I'm probably most comfortable with because these are consumers I've been talking to and thinking about and researching for a long time now, um, for well over 15 years. Um, and I joined Sotheby's International Realty as the chief marketing officer and spent the last three years there. So yeah, curious journey. And a fun one. Yeah, right? it, had, it has been fun. I think it, it's been really interesting to me when I look back and I think about, you know, the, those, those common threads and what are the things that sort of carried through. And these, I, you know, I had, have this history of joining companies when they're at a, a turning point and trying to reimagine or, or think about where they need to go in the future and, and how they interact with consumers and the role that relationships and loyalty and you know the value proposition and and understanding a brand's you know sort of dna and the core messaging behind why a brand exists and and so it's been fun to do that in a number of different industries did you ever think when you know a boy in canada <laughs> from a dairy a farm, farm in Canada. I, I, yeah, I, I grew up on a dairy farm in southern Ontario. Did I think that I would land at the CMO of Sotheby's International Realty? No, no, I didn't even know what Sotheby's International Realty was. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I was thinking about it like because I was the same way. I, I well, honestly, I, I think I thought you know I would I would be performing somewhere on a stage, but I I knew that I liked retail, but I didn't think that this would really become my career and understanding why people behave the way they do would be of such interest to me. And yet, you know, it's performing, you know, as, as, a, as a teacher in front of a classroom is very much performance on a, on a type of stage, I think a more serious stage. But yeah, I think, you know, the, curi the curiosity for me has always been how people interact and why they interact the way they do and the choices they make. And, you know, when I, w I went to university in Southern Ontario, uh, for my bachelor's degree, and I studied social geography, which was really the study of how people move around the planet and why they do and where they go certain places and, and, and how their behavior changes as they adapt to new environments. And all of that is sounds very, you know, that that makes sense to me now to to be in the position that I'm in, having 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 started thinking about that so long ago. Well, when you think about that, and considering your career and how you've navigated through it, and we're looking at a luxury consumer or any consumer. Mm -hmm. What have you seen in the last five years that you were like, now that's a big shift? 
Well, I mean, of course, the the, the big the biggest shift is the role that e-commerce plays in in the retail space and and luxury brands. And you know this. We you know we were we were both at Gucci at when when e-commerce was launching there. Um, this was a brand that, like I said, had been around for 85, 86 years. When they launch, when they had to launch a website, you know, their only their only interaction with consumers had been in person up to that point. P- people coming into the stores and and you know for this 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 coveted product that they they aspired to own so badly and and you know the to the transactions themselves were were not complicated. You know they they had the Gucci had the it bag that season, and so people would run into the stores and almost throw their money down and grab the handbags and run out the door. We didn't even have to ask them their names. You know that it, it was mm-hmm. it was it was simple and straightforward. And I think companies like Amazon turned that world upside down, and all of a sudden you had brands that were connecting with consumers in their homes and getting to know them before they ever set foot in your store. And that, so all of a sudden, if you're a brand that has for decades relied on the in-store experience, that brick and mortar experience, and you're not even, you know, you hadn't even invested in that. When I joined Barney's New York, the role of, you know, head of customer experience didn't exist. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a conversation that they had had prior to my role being created. So there was no conversation around really getting to know consumers and finding out how to play a more influential role in their lives outside of the four walls of your brick and mortar stores. So e-commerce, you know, and of course this started over a decade ago. I think in the last five years, what has changed so dramatically is that the speed at which brands have been able to influence people's lives. I mean, you, you look at the, the rapid rise of brands like Uber, for example, and their ability to come in and disrupt an industry that had operated the same way for a very, very long time. So I think that the, the, the acceleration there and the idea that all of these brands now and the brands that I've worked for are really trading in time as a commodity, time in front of the consumer. That is the commodity that these brands are transacting in. And I think that is a different world from, you know, 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. I want to unpack something that you you mentioned where you said, you know, the idea of customer experience. Mm-hmm. And now we talk about it so much, you know, we've been able to abbreviate it. It's CX. I mean, everyone is like, you know, what's the customer's experience? What's the customer's engagement? But you, you made the point. I mean, when you and I were back at, at Gucci, we couldn't have told you some of our top clients. And I and, and you've even we've talked about it when you got to Barney's. It was very much the same way. Yeah. Obviously, the recession changed that because when that 2008, 2009 recession happened, there was a desire like, you know, everyone thought, "Uh oh, we don't know who our clients are. We need to start redirecting and Mm -hmm. and leveraging CRM information, really looking at customer experience. Yeah. I want to ask you, you know, when you think about that process, what was the most challenging part of a process of going we need to implement a true customer experience program. Uh, so the hardest part in the, in the beginning was that we had no data. Um, you know, you, you, you touched on it when I got to Barney's. I, you know, this was after the, we were starting to recover from that downturn, 2010, 2011. And I, I took a look at the top 30% of um, uh, shoppers in the, at Barney's New York store. So these were customers that were spending $25,000 a year or more in one of our stores. And for over, oh, I think it was close to half of them, we didn't have a phone number for them. We, didn't, we coun't call them and ask them how they were doing. We, a sales associate couldn't pick up a phone 
and say, hey, how are you doing? I have some, you know, have some new arrivals. What can I do for you? How can I create a better brand experience for you? We couldn't even reach out to them. We didn't know, like you said, we didn't know who they were. And so it, building a customer experience in the absence of that kind of data is very, very challenging. We, we really had to start from square one and say, okay, let's get the data first. And then we have to start reaching out. We have to equip our sales associates with the skills to do that because the, obviously if they didn't have the phone numbers, they weren't doing it. They weren't, they weren't building a relationship mm -hmm. outside of that customer walking into the store and being physically present with them. So this was a whole new mindset. And that was, that was immensely challenging. And this is something that has been common in, in, throughout my career path too. I've landed at brands that have been doing business the same way for a very long time. And changing that mindset can be incredibly challenging. What we, what we were trying to do at Barney's under Mark Lee and Daniela Vitelli's direction was shift the culture of a company that had been doing business the same way for 75 years. And that's a very, very hard thing to do. I think you need leadership buy-in is essential. You need to understand what designing your customer journey is going to look like that. You know, we're, yes, we're all talking about CX right now, but I think the conversation for many brands is still in the very early stages. Everyone knows it matters. I'm skeptical about how many brands are really well equipped to build an effective and meaningful customer journey map. Um, I think most are challenged to do so. There's a I, there's a really interesting conversation that's happening now about the gap between experiential data and organizational data. So now that companies have you know we have e-commerce and we're connecting with consumers on their mobile devices and we're we're you know planting pixels on their phone and we're tracking their behavior. We're 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 capturing all this data in almost a big brothery kind of way. Um, so we have all of this organizational data, but we don't have a lot of the true experiential data. There are very few brands in my experience that have sat down with consumers and said, tell us about what your experience with our brand is. Tell us what you believe our brand, how you believe our brand brings value to, to your life. I love that you, you use the term, how does our brand bring value to your life? Because... You know, I would say one of the biggest challenges I'm noticing with some existing brands and, and even with startups that are coming into this is they're very product focused. And so it's like, yeah, we make product and we sell it. Mm -hmm. But the other part is, is what is your mission yeah. and what are your values? And those have not always been established and they're not always, you know, in a world of transparency, it's odd to me if that's not readily available for consumers to see. I think it speaks to that gap, but you know, there are, there was a survey done not very long ago and forgive me, I'm not sure, I'm not sure who did it. I, um, but there was, it was something like 82% of CEOs believe that their brand delivers an amazing customer experience and only, but only 16% of consumers believe that brands do that. There's this massive gap. And I think there, there are still a lot of brands that are out there saying, well, if we make good product, then people will just want it. And I think that that's not necessarily the case anymore. I think there are great companies. There are companies that have delivered solid, reliable, dependable products that, that are, are falling by the wayside now that are, that are declaring bankruptcy or have, you, you look at a brand like Sears that had such a lock on middle america for so many years there was they had 
Kenmore. They had Craftsman. If you were in a home where your parents had Kenmore appliances, you grew up, you bought Kenmore appliances. If your dad or your mom had, had Craftsman tools, you grew up, you bought Craftsman tools. And I think they had such a lock on it that they stopped really talking to consumers about that value proposition, or they never really bothered to in the beginning. They just said, we're here, we're dependable, ergo, you need us. And that's not the case anymore. So, and I, I, and that goes back to this idea that brands are trading in, in time as a commodity, right? If you're not in front of consumers reminding them that they need you or that you can help improve the life they're living via, you know, a really effective, you know, under, understanding your, your customer journey and understanding the touch points and where to reach them and when and how often. If you're not doing that, you can make the best product in the world and, and no one's going to care. When you talk about customer journey and really looking at your organization and it's that time to, to, to have an analysis done and, and you and I have done this work many times I think we could probably do it in our sleep now. <laughs> um, when you look at analysis, what are the most important things that that analysis needs to say about the, the company in its current state to form what the strategy is going to be? So I think you have to start with an, an understanding of why your company exists, why your brand exists. What is, what is the what is the reason? Are, are you doing something that is singularly unique in the market? Are you doing it in a way that no one else has done it before? Are you doing it at a better price? You can do exactly what your competitor is doing, but you offer greater value just in terms of price. Um, you know, that that's that's not often the conversation in the luxury space. In the luxury space, we're really talking about how we deliver something that is extraordinarily unique to consumers that they simply, they believe no one else can get and so that they're they're going to have something that is that is unavailable to others and they they attribute value to that so i think that understanding that why messaging is really really key you have to you know you sit down with your stakeholders with your senior leadership team and you say what why are we all here you know when i was at sotheby's international realty i i did that i did that exercise and it was interesting because when we asked some of our slt why we exist as a brand they said to buy and sell homes. And I disagreed because it has to be more than that. If it's just to buy and sell homes, anyone can do that. You can, you can buy and sell a home from your living room now. You can, you know, you can transact as an iBuyer and you can sell your home in a matter of days and you know, off you, the money's in your account in a week and off you go. It has to be more than that. If we're going to ask clients to pay the highest commissions in the industry the, to agent, for agents to do the heavy lift that is you know, understanding the Sotheby's International Realty brand, there has to be more to it. The next step, it, you have to take that message to your consumers or who, to who you believe your targeted consumers are and ask them if it's real. Does that sound true? Um, does, it, does it ring true to them? And, and, and get their, you know, their response is vital. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, you can choose to listen to it or not. Um, but you have to, I, I believe you have to ask. I think that consumer research is something that brands should be doing all the time. It's not a one and done thing. You can't do focus groups three years ago and have that guide your, your strategy today because consumer behavior is ever changing. So I agree with that. You know, I, I think even more so now understanding Absolutely. what the consumer's behavior is going to be because, you know, we were speaking with, with uh, Brandon Rowe uh, the other day who like you, really has has leaned into what the luxury consumer is about their behavior and 
asked him, you know, how do you see luxury consumers changing as we navigate through this pandemic? And, and I'd love your thoughts on how that'll change. But we've redefined what luxury means also over the last mm-hmm. five to 10 years. So will that change? And how will this consumer change? Yeah, it is going to change. Um, I think the change, the first wave of the change started, you know, five, six, seven years ago when we saw we saw luxury consumers really becoming really concerned about the value they were receiving for the dollars they were spending. You know, they they were still spending at very high levels. You know, those those Barney's shoppers that were spending $25,000 on a more were still spending that. And, and every time we delivered on our customer experience promise, they spent exponentially more each time they visited the store, which is which is phenomenal and was telling us we were doing the right thing. But the, the, the level of expectation from the consumer was that we were going to deliver more than we had ever done before. So if you were a Barney's New York credit card holder, when I arrived at the company, you know, you got discounts using your card, you got, you know, there were promotional days there. It was very, it was very discount focused. And, and I thought that was misdirected because we were talking to consumers who were spending tens of thousands of dollars on their, when they visited our stores, they, they're not, they don't care about a 10% discount. They don't care about a 5% discount. So we had to look really carefully about what was driving their behavior. And what we, what we heard was, I want, I want more from the brand. I, I love Barney's. I'm passionate about Barney's New York. I want them to be a part of how I'm living my life. So I think that was the first wave. I think what we're going to see now, what, what the current pandemic is doing is, is, causing people to think more critically and they're really consumers are really digging into brand behavior and holding them accountable in a way that is unprecedented. I mean, if you look at um, the, you know, the sort of cancel culture that we're in now where if brands make a mistake um, and it happens in the public sphere and it happens online, the willingness of consumers to, to, to band together and, and ban those brands from, from their lives is really extraordinary. That's that we've just never seen this before. Um, so I think that the sense of urgency around getting the messaging right, connecting with consumers, being genuine about your connection and, and what you believe you provide to them as value is more important than ever. So I think this is like this is like part two of that evolution. The ur- you know it's the the timeline is shorter, the urgency is greater, um, and we're going to see you know that this pandemic when when we start to come out of this, hopefully over the, ne- the course of the next several months, um, we're going to see a wave of bankruptcies in the retail space, a huge wave, and it's right. unavoidable. You know I think these are generally companies that were headed down this path anyway, but it has accelerated and shortened the timeline. So companies that were on the verge of collapse, a brand like JCPenney is teetering. If I was a betting man, I would say they're unlikely to survive this. Um, there are going to, there's going to be a huge wave of bankruptcies. Now, that's going to open up space for exciting new entrepreneurs and new brands and new companies that are thinking differently and thinking customer first and experience first. And, um, and I think that's exciting. It is, it's, it's unfortunate that through part one of this change, this behavioral change that was started happening a number of years ago, a lot of brands sort of closed their eyes and said, no, we will just continue to do business the same way. We don't need to change. And the whole industry changed around them. Mm, that's very true. I, I love that you said that the whole industry changed around them because then it brings to question 
are department stores even still relevant and mm. are they important? This this idea of I go into a space and and I'm engaging with tons of different products from tons of different brands. And you and I have worked multi-vendor and we've worked mono brand. Yeah. I've always said I have an affinity for mono brand because I always liked how the service level was in a mono brand. I think that's that was always just me. Yeah. Um, I like that clear direction. But what do you see as kind of the fate of the department store, or, you know, as, yeah. as we move on? The news over the past couple of days about, about Neiman Marcus is... is is sad. It's not shocking. The, the the role of the department store has been changing for for years now, and I think, um, I, you know, again, going back to my experience at Barney's New York, what what Barney's did well for so long was that they tried to be in the middle of that. They they were not mono brand, but yet the Barney's New York experience was singularly unique in the department store sort of realm. Um, they didn't do shopping shops. They weren't, you know, a, a lot of department stores that you go into now, it's like walking into just a smaller version of a shopping mall because everybody has their own licensed boutique, their own branding, their own staff, their own style. And so you, you're, you're actually, what, what's happening is you're walking into these stores that have created dozens of mini little customer experiences that are all somewhat different because they're all, you know, Dior staff are trained by Dior corporate, Gucci staff are trained by Gucci corporate, and they have their own selling ceremony, they have their own brand experience. Um, and so you lose this ability to connect meaning to the larger brand like a Neiman Marcus or a Saks Fifth Avenue. And that's risky territory because when, when times are tough and things like pandemics happen, you know, and they will happen again, if you have not built a meaningful connection, consumers are, are easily swayed by, by other brands that are willing to step in and say, I will play this role for you. As we come out of this pandemic as well, when we consider the sheer size of a lot of, of our big name department stores that, that we've come to, to know over the years, I think of myself going back into, you know, as we go back into physical retail spaces, do I want to be in a space where that many people can be in it? Mm. I, like, I, I, I find myself thinking, you know, from an operational perspective, from the customer experience perspective, what is this going to look like for those stores as they yeah. reopen? Because it's it's a big undertaking, right? If you it is. And I think I think we're going to see a, a, a shift in design thinking. We're going to, you know, it, it's I think people, you're absolutely right. People are going to be more conscious about being in large spaces with lots of people and, and how that makes them feel. And so I think we're going to start to see these spaces designed to allow for a greater sense of intimacy and privacy. And, you know, brick and mortar is not going away, right? I, you know, Amazon and the big players, you know, for, for a long time, I heard everyone saying, you know, and there were all kinds of headlines on CNN about how brick and mortar is dead, you know, shopping malls are over. They're not. Um, they needed to evolve. And they were they were a little bit slow in, in that the, the vast majority of shopping pandemic or no is, is, is still going to happen in physical spaces, we still have to go to the grocery store regardless of what's happening right now. So the ones, the stores that are able to build experiences that make us feel safe and secure, which are the primary, you know, that's what's most important right now today, those stores will continue to have customers line up. They might line up six feet apart, but they're still going to line up to go into those stores. I think we're going to see this design thinking change, I think. And again, that, that goes back to what we touched on earlier understanding your customer journey 
is vital if you're going to change the, the physical space that they come into and understanding what is meaningful to them um, is, is really vitally important. Now, in the U.S., there's sort of a, an added layer of challenge on top of that because we, we have too many stores. There's about 37 square feet of retail space per capita in the United States. It's the highest in the world. Number two uh, is there's a tie for number two, Australia and Canada, and they have about, I think, uh, just around 20 square feet uh, per capita. We built too much, right? There are, there are too many shopping malls. Do, are shopping malls going to die completely? No. Of course, you look at Woodbury Common, you know, a Simon property uh, that was part of my portfolio. It's the number three tourist destination in New York City which is crazy to me because it's not even in New York City. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's, 40, it's 45 minutes north of New York City, and yet the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building, and Woodbury Commons are the top three traffic drivers for tourists in New York City. If you get the experience right, they will come in droves, and, and Woodbury is the perfect example of that. So I want to talk about, you know, with you, because you've worked directly in marketing, but when you were in your role of customer experience, the same as me, we were actually part of the operations team. Right. And I always find that interesting because what we did, if you, if you think about what we did, in some organizations, it really would have been in HR and other organizations, it would have been in marketing. Mm-hmm. But for us, we were in operations, which I have, I have to say was quite beneficial to us. Yeah, I, I agree. I think what, what was great about that and we're talking about Bar- the organization at Barney's here. So I think what was great about that SLT was that we were also very closely tied to the marketing team. So there wasn't, you know, we weren't operating in silos. We were we were partners with marketing. So if they were doing promotions, they were relying on us to provide definition and build out the customer experience around a promotion to help understand the the opportunities for success or the challenges that they're going to run into. So I think this is something that is changing a lot right now uh, for many, many brands. You know, certainly my experience at Sotheby's um, International Realty, you know, IT lived under me um, as as chief marketing officer, which I was kind of surprised by when I first arrived at the organization because I had never seen that before. and but the website, it you know, the, and driving traffic to the website was the top priority for the brand um, because that 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 is what Sotheby's International Realty is. It's fifty thousand luxury properties from seventy two countries around the world listed online. You have to go online to see them. So it made sense that IT was the the core focus of marketing and what, where the bulk of my budget was allocated. However, you know, I also was intimately partnered with the operations team and worked with them every single day. There wasn't any, there was never a conversation that happened in the absence of some sort of operational input. So I think a lot of these, these SLT roles are getting redefined. Now there are companies that are doing away with the old definition of chief marketing officer and creating chief customer officers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the traditional role of, of COO is evolving now too. And it's, it's a little more hands-on and connected to brand and understanding brand value. Look at the, at the end of the day, the, the brand is the most, is the greatest asset you have because that's how, that's what you use to influence behavior. And so you have to be, those things have to be sort of stitched together now in a way that they were not before. So as we see that, you know, organizations are making, you know, a, a true effort to make sure there are no silos and, and we understand it's much better when this cross-departmental functions are working together, especially when it comes to data and leveraging it appropriately. Do you think that we'll see 
more collaborations between brands and other brands as, as we move through this pandemic. And the reason I bring that up is when we look at how China has navigated uh, the pandemic, you have Budweiser working with DJs to create in-house parties for people who are in self-isolation. You know, and, and it's, they've, they've realized, okay, we need to target this group of people because people who were going out to bars were the ones who were drinking our beer. And how do we get them? So mm-hmm. let's have a DJ DJ, and then we send people beer. So well, do or, you, and or how do they? How do as a brand? How do we maintain relevance in their lives if they're not going to bars anymore for a while? Right, right. What what role does our brand play if they're all staying at home? Yes, I, I think that's so, got to be really top of mind for for. Yeah, and I, I I do think I think you're right. I think I think it will drive further collaboration. I mean, we, that, that had started already, right? We had a lot of brands and certainly in the luxury space, you know, there were lots of partnerships with young up and coming designers and creative thinkers and people who are looking at the experience differently because their goal is to tap, you know, the, the new clients, right. To feed the top of the funnel, the new Gucci shopper, who is going to be the new L, you know, Louis Vuitton shopper, the new Dior shopper, um, because these are big storied brands that are that are doing very well. If you look at a company like Chanel that's doing better than it's ever done in, in the history of the brand currently. And you, you know, they they've been very, very thoughtful and critical about partnering with artists and and musicians and to, and DJs to your point. And I think those collaborations will continue. They'll con- and they're they're going to happen more and more often because brands are trying to again, we're playing in time as a commodity, right? So if we can partner and share our time, that's to a mutual benefit. You know, the, the, I think the thoughtful, critical analysis of who you partner with and how and when, you know, there, there needs to be, or then there will be more emphasis placed on that as well. You have to think very thoughtfully about making it feel genuine and sincere, because if you're partnering with a, 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 another brand just to get in front of consumers that you think should be buying your product, and that's the sole purpose behind the partnership, that's going to feel pretty flat to the consumer. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the worst thing you can do to the modern consumer, millennial and Gen Z, is, is leave them feeling manipulated. I think manipulated is the best word that could be used. Yeah, they know how valuable their time is, right? They're 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 on their devices twenty four seven. If you're wasting their time, they're very quick to dismiss you. Um, so you know that you you need to be, and I'm saying you as a, as a, as brands, brands need to be very careful not to do that. So when we talk about how brands enga- are, are engaging with the global community and how we have before, and now looking at this particular situation. Do you think there's going to be the rise of local culture? Because we don't really see ourselves being able to travel so much. So what do you kind of see in the behavior? Because a lot of the U.S. luxury market came from, you know, foreign countries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do you see this kind of reshaping how we all are engaging with our ecosystems on a local level? I mean, my my hope is my you know I tend to be optimistic, maybe even somewhat naively. So my hope is that there is a greater focus on sustainability and thoughtfulness, and you know the 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 environmental impact of our behavior coming out of this. I think for a lot of people, there's just a greater sense of 
we're pushing things to the limit as as uh, collectively as humans on this planet and and if we want if we are going to continue to want these beautiful things and these luxury products and to and aspire to live a life a certain way can we you know how do we sustain that so that it's you know this remains for our children and and it's very you know I, if you think back to sort of the the rampant consumerism of the 80s there was no thought put into, or very little thought put into where products were coming from, how they were manufactured, the, you know, the chemicals used, how they were disposed of, what the impact of all of that on the environment. And that's not very long ago. And I think that, that mm-hmm. has changed dramatically, this idea of sustainability in the luxury space, in fashion in general, because fashion is a, a massive global polluter. Um, you know, how, how do we shift how these goods are made? I still want the beautiful things that I've always wanted, but I'm thinking more now about what goes into making them. And am I willing to spend my, you know, my hard-earned dollars on uh, with a brand that is not thinking the same way that I am? So I think that sustainability is, is it, we're going to see a, a huge uptick in that conversation that had, had started anyway. I mean, if you look at you know, local. And, and I was having a conversation yesterday about farm to table. And we we're talking about uh, personal chefs going into luxury homes and preparing meals for people. And that's been around for a while now. But now the, the request from the consumer is the client is I want, you know, a chef that does only farm to table or non GMO or <laughs> macrobiotic or what, you know, whatever, it, whatever it is. And, and the expectation is that they can deliver. So it's sort of, it's like next level thinking, in in the realm of sustainability and 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 smart practices from business, I don't think we could have ended on a on a better thought. On a, <laughs> it's a, a bold new thing. world. That's what we're, we're going to leave it there. <laughs> it, it really is. It's like that, and and that it really is where we are. And I think you know that's how we have to think about it. You know, to your point, sustainability and, and the localization of things are going to be even more so important because yeah. you know the generation. You know, Generation Z, who's experiencing this right now, this is, I, I would imagine, far more impactful on them than it is even sure. on me, right? Because yeah. I've lived certain experiences in my life. I've, I've graduated and yeah. went to prom. and Yeah, because this current experience is what is shaping their behavior in the way that, you know, our behavior was shaped in our late teens and 20s. This is this period of time is shaping behavior that they're going to carry through for the rest of their lives. So it's happening at a very formative time, which means their approach to all of this, you know, that the the hardwiring or the portion of the hardwiring that happens sort of cognitively during that period is going to stay mm-hmm. for the rest of their lives. That is different for for us, and certainly, and and you know, when you think of our parents' generation. When I arrived at Simon Property Group and I said, hey, let's let's think about some new ways to do business. And they said, no, 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 no. <laughs> a lot of people said, no, we've, we've been really successful <laughs> for 35 years. We don't want to change anything. We just want to keep making the same amount of money. And I knew that was going to be impossible, but it was really hard to convince some people of that. Uh, many people, because they just had not known anything but that. Wow. Well, Kevin, I have to tell you, this has been a great conversation. I'm I'm glad you made time for us today. No problem. I enjoyed um, it. For our listeners, how could they reach out to you in the future and, and know what's happening in your world or or get advice on anything? 
if you want to know more about me or see any of the, you mentioned some of the articles that I published at the, at the top of this conversation, um, you can go to chiefbrandbuilder.com. Um, that's me. That is my digital portfolio. And there's also um, my contact information is there as well. So chiefbrandbuilder.com is the best way to reach out. You can just ask questions. You can take a look at, at the work that I've done. Um, there are the articles I published, the video content, the digital content that I've created uh, over the last several years is all there as well. So feel free. Thank you so much, Kevin. There we have it. Kevin Thompson, Chief Brand Strategist, uh, joining us today. Thank you. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Great conversations. Thank you for listening to this episode of Retail Revolution. A very special thank you to everyone who has helped make this podcast possible. Our guests, our students, and fellow faculty at Parsons School of Design, especially in such an extraordinary and unprecedented time. Our theme music was composed by Spencer Powell. Be well and stay tuned for our next episode.